Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode. This week on Plenary Session, I'm joined by Ann Sawson. She is a researcher at the Dartmouth Medical School, and she's here to talk about the secrets of Vermont in taming the COVID-19 pandemic. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad MDMPH. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. I'm back in Plenary Session, joined via Zoom by friend of the podcast, Ann Sawson. Ann Sawson is a researcher based out of Vermont and Dartmouth, um, and she is a prior guest of this podcast where she talked about the unique success and challenges faced um, in a small northeastern state like Vermont. Uh, Anne, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me back on the show. Since you've been, um, since we've been off, um, I hear a lot of talk of Vermont. Vermont is being hailed as like the the greatest exception to this country um, in the sense that you all invested in you know, it, it, it wasn't just about restrictions, it was about investments. And that's been sort of a core theme about uh, about the success of Vermont. I wonder if you might talk a little bit about um, one, like what, there are no, there's no real success when it comes to a pandemic, but you fared better than most. So what does it mean to have succeeded? And, and, and what was the, what were the investments that were thought to have played a role? Sure. Um, thanks for that question. I think Vermont offers a lot of lessons on how to approach um, a pandemic. Um, and l- let me talk through just a few of the things that we're learning right now. You know, obviously, we can see that the, Vermont has led um, the country consistently in low rates of infection. And many, you know, many believe that it's something that just happened, um, <laughs> that the state got lucky, um, yeah. that it was a result of um, the state being rural, you know, and what our research really shows is that there are actual, you know, there are key strengths in the state, but there are real lessons that can translate out to other settings. Um, and let me talk briefly yes. about some of those Please. lessons. Yeah. So one thing um, that, you know, Vermont recognized is that needed to figure out how, you know, how to manage the pandemic. And by that, it it adopted what I would describe as a phased approach to the pandemic. You know, many states succeeded in averting um, high rates of infection early on, only to see resurgences later. And Vermont defined a clear phased approach to the pandemic and with a real focus on that post shutdown period. Um, It you know, during the shutdown, it scaled up t- testing and contact tracing, but it also really thought, how do we, you know, how do we sustain these behavior changes over time? And it was able to do that very successfully through the summer and into the fall, even as other states had resurgences. Mm. I think the second lesson that we've learned is that Vermont has prioritized its most vulnerable populations from the start of the pandemic. You know, it has, it, we know um, that COVID-19 
chain selects preferentially for the poor, as Paul Farmer has said. We know that, you know, it's our essential workforce. It's our residents of nursing homes, prisons, and other congregate living settings that have, you know, seen higher rates of infection and mortality. And yet most of the most of the um, you know, most of the states have not prioritized these populations in their approach. You know, Vermont has had a number of policies, programs, and strategies to target these populations. It housed its homeless populations using an expanded form of its motel voucher situation. Um, so, so that's a big one. I wonder if you could go into that for a second. So homeless population was given housing. Um, that's important. It, it's really important. You know, um, there are rates of infection up to 66 percent hmm. that have been documented in homeless populations. And it's because we know that, you know, their social distancing is not possible yes. um, in a crowded shelter environment. What Vermont did is it's ex- it expanded its existing motel voucher program. Um, it housed um, many homeless um, people in motels, and then social service organizations and community groups provided nutritional support. Um, they provided other social services um, so that their needs were met. So it was really a partnership um, that was led by the state, but su- by, but supported um, by the social service sector. Um, in and um, in Vermont has to date documented, um, to my knowledge, only six cases of COVID nineteen um, in its homeless population, and that's I a see. stark difference, I think, from what yes. we've seen elsewhere. I think, but the differences don't ex- um, don't stop there. Um, we know that there's a clear link between housing um, and um, and COVID nineteen. Yes. Um, there, the Vermont um, has had an eviction moratorium in place, mm-hmm. and what we're starting to see um, in the state of Vermont is that that's not only highly protective um, against COVID-19, but there are also other positive outcomes. So it's been a sort of natural experiment of what happens um, when you do the right things and you address those social determinants of health. Yes. Um, Vermont has targeted its testing um, to rural communities rather than having sites that are inaccessible mm. um, to rural locations I where see. transportation represents a major barrier to healthcare. Anytime there's been an outbreak, the state has brought testing to those communities and it's paired that testing with really targeted support um, for those communities. There was an outbreak at an apple orchard. The state brought in nutritional assistance to ensure that those um, the the workers that were there um, could isolate. There was um, there have been other outbreaks, and so the support has been really directed at the very specific needs of the communities that were affected. Um, and we've seen, you know, over and over again that this, you know, it's not simply a matter of prioritizing, but identifying what are the specific needs and how can we do, how can we meet them with the resources that we have. So that's a second, you know, so that's a second lesson from Vermont. You know, I think the third thing that the state yeah. has done yeah. really well is yeah. it's targeted or it's it's developed policy responses to offset what we know are the secondary impacts of those restrictions. We know Mm. that restrictions have, you know, economic Mm. impacts, Mm -hmm. um, that businesses suffer, um, that workers suffer, and the state has used its CARES Act funding to target the most effective sectors Mm. of the economy. Mm -hmm. This not only has helped businesses through, but I think it's increased tolerance you know, for these restrictions, and it's been really critical to sustaining success over time. And it's not something that we talk about very often, 
Um, but we know that there's been an erosion of support in many places because of the impacts of these measures on the economy. And I think, you know, I'm really hopeful that, you know, as we look ahead, um, you know, to a reset of the pandemic, um, come late January, yes. that there'll be real attention to what are the, what kind of economic relief do we need to put in place? Yes. Um, you know, to, to make, you know, these measures, um, work better. I think the fourth thing that, has been really effectively done in the state of Vermont also is the use of messaging. You know, I, messaging is not a substitute for good public health, but it's critical to enlisting a population, you know, in a public health response. And yes. this, there's, you know, the state has, you know, always conveyed the sense of hope and agency, yes. you know, in telling communities your actions matter. Yes. Um, and through, you know, the sac collective sacrifices of this population, we're going to achieve, you know, meaningful goals. And those goals go beyond simply not packing ICUs or not, you know, having outbreaks in our nursing homes. These goals are we're going to keep our schools open. We're going to yes. uh, protect our businesses. Yes. You know, we're going to. You know, we're going to ensure, you know, some sort of social continuity throughout this pandemic. And I think that's made a, you know, a real difference in terms of how the state has done um, in, in the state's um, overall performance. I think the fifth lesson that I'll highlight is um, that the state has really there's been quite a bit of adaptation of good you know, good guidance yeah. to local context. Yeah. There's a great deal of specificity. You know, we have good scientific evidence um, now on some questions, but then we need to think about how do we actually implement that at state level, at regional level, at community level in a way that is really going to work. And yes. I think one of the failures of the pandemic response nationally has been the, there's been a lot of attention on these key scientific questions without a lot of thought about how do we translate down that down into a real world setting. And yes. we see, you know, so much specificity in terms of how, you know, the state has approached the challenges that it's um, that it's seen, you know, across um, various communities. Oh, those are so many excellent points. I mean, investing in um, secure housing, um, my understanding was I looked at it once a long time ago and it was like something like like $11,000 per person per year. And when you think about how much we spend in healthcare and how $11,000, like one ED visit practically, um, that something like that can just pay for itself. Um, and in the case of a pandemic, clearly a key thing. And then the other thing you said that just really strikes me um, as just super rational is keeping people invested um, it has been very difficult. Um, keeping people motivated, um, to push on, to, to follow precautions that we believe are sensible. Um, and, and that investment is strengthened when people feel like they're getting something back for it. And in your case, the schools being open. Um, I think um, there have been one of the frustrations about the school closures, I think, and there's a recent meta-analysis that shows this. If you like zoom out on the world and look at school closures, the relationship between local case rates and schools being open and closed, it's like a coin flip. It has nothing to do with the other. And that is frustrating, I think, to many people who watch this and see that it's just sort of this is tribal fight. But in a place like Vermont, you merge those two things together and you say that as long as we're able to keep this virus under control, we can have the schools opening. And that's a great good for all of us. And certainly for many people who have got kids of that age, um, I'm sure that they would be um, strong believers in that and be willing to, to do some of these harder things. Uh, yes, definitely. What I would say is that schools have emerged as key leaders in the public health response in this state. And wow. let me explain yeah. what I mean yeah. by that. 
you know, when schools reopened, there was a call from leadership across the state to communities to take actions to reopen schools to keep teachers and students safe. And it was school superintendents, it was school principals and others saying, these are the things that we need you to do um, for us to be able to keep our schools open. You know, and the schools have all actually played a really important role in terms of accountability for some of the public health measures in place. Their mechanism, you know, they act as a mechanism for um, you know, enforcing or implementing some of those measures. And families want to do that because schools are so valuable um, to them. They keep a workforce running. um, They, you know, they keep the economy running. And, you know, and as families understand that, you know, the school closures have enormous impacts, um, you know, on, you know, their children's well-being. So they've been, you know, I think that role that schools actually play or can potentially play in stemming transmission has really been underappreciated or underexplored in many settings. You're somebody who is also on social media, although you're very quiet. You don't say too much. You're smiling in acknowledgement that I'm saying something true. (laughs) Um, If you were to reflect on, I think, you know, you you made this point that communication is important. Of course, communication alone won't stop a virus, but communication is key. And, and here you are at least a consumer of, I think, national, international communication. Um, where, where do you see the deficits? Um, where do you see the strengths? I mean, where, when you look on Twitter, I imagine sometimes you cringe and you say, oh gosh, why they, that's not how I would do it. I wouldn't say it that way. That's not unlikely to be successful. Sometimes you may see something that you really resonates with you. I'm wondering if you might articulate, you know, what are the things that, that, that get you, get you concerned? That's a great question. Uh, you know, is you know, as someone who's engaged um, sort of in community-based research or research um, that's not biomedical, sometimes I worry that sometimes I worry that there's an underrepresentation of you know other disciplines, other methods, um, you know, other approaches, and I wish that you know I. I I think that there's been a privileging of um, certain disciplines over other disciplines. Um, And it's really important for us to think, how can we collaborate across disciplines? Um, We need really robust biomedical research, but we also need really strong social sciences um, to go along with it. You know, we are going to have, or we have, um, we have a vaccine now. Now we really need to think about, you know, how are we going to deliver that? That's going to require, you know, different forms of research. How are we going to overcome um, some of the barriers, um, including um, vaccine hesitancy? You know, and that that's going to require a call um, to a range of other disciplines. Um, and so and, and so I think we need to rather than fight about epistemic boundaries, um, I think we need to think, how do we collaborate productively across those boundaries, recognizing, you know, that we have shared goals um, and vaccinating the population. So I think and I think Twitter sometimes can fragment um you know those debates in unproductive ways that said i think you know social media can also um give rise to collaborations um it's you know it can there can be productive networking you know or at least my experience has been that it's been a place to connect with others who are thinking about similar ideas 
Yeah, I think that's well put. Um, we hear the whole range of views on social media from the ED doctors to the ID doctors, and that's really the whole. <laughs> I, 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 I think I think one of the things that concerns me with social media is that it's become a platform yeah. um, for shaming. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think that shame is an effective, you know, strategy um, in public health. I Actually, I think we have no evidence that supports, you know, shame as being the, you know, as, a, as an approach. But um, and go, go on with that. Like um, some examples of that would be a photo of people meeting dinner party or the beach photos from the summer. Or um, I, I think, um, I don't know, I guess I was troubled a little bit around the holiday. And I think we're going to, I'm going to be troubled again very shortly is, um, you know, I guess, I guess shaming to me is, is is certainly among strategies that I don't think are persuasive. Um, the other thing is like I'm not necessarily sure if if the right strategy is yelling louder or trying to scare people. You're 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 shaking your head no, um, because like the one thing I notice is um, you know I, I guess I was struck by that poll around Thanksgiving time that I think one of these newspapers put out where they said 38% of Americans plan to meet with at least 10 or more relatives. And I don't know, only a third would ask their relatives to wear masks or something like that. Um, they put out that poll. And I almost felt like the way they wrote the headline um, was to kind of get the goat of doctors and get the doctors to like retweet it. Like it was a clickbait to like get your outrage. Um, and I I'd really worry that like so much of the, of, of all messaging is trying to get you we, like it's hard to get people interested in what you're saying unless you really anger them. So like it's like provocative stuff. Um, so I wonder if this was just in that sense. But when I read the poll, when I read that poll, of course, I was actually I'm really saddened by it. Like, what does it tell you? It tells you that like people are really lonely and suffering. That they're saying that even though all we're talking about is is COVID nineteen all year, um, thirty eight percent of them still want to meet their loved ones and they like haven't seen like parents. And 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 I think the other thing about it is that's hard to express to people in different countries was is you know, in a lot of countries, like the country my parents are from, um, children and parents can like live together for like their entire lives. Um, but in the United States, for some of us, the only time we ever see our parents is Thanksgiving. It has just has a different meaning in the United States than it does in other places around the world where people are much closer. We often, people move to different cities, thousands of miles away. Um, so when I saw that poll, I actually felt sad and I felt really sad because I think people were telling you something about how they really feel, because of course, all the incentives of the poll would be to like minimize that number, not to, you know, to say it. Um, and so one of the responses was people were like, well, the ICUs are overflowing and the hospitals are overworked. And I think that those are true, but that's unlikely to have valiance on somebody who is saying this right now. Um, and, and I think shame is, was another popular tactic and anger. And I even got, I ended up writing an article saying like, we need to think of ways to like have a meeting up, meet up, but less risk. And I, I'm working on a new one for Christmas where I'm going to have some more suggestions, but, um, I got a lot of blowback my way that, and, and, and it included some of that epistemic trespassing that you talked about, which was somebody said that, um, that I, I wasn't a public health expert. And then I looked on my wall at that uh, MPH I have from Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and a tear went down my cheek because it's the only time. <laughs> I was like, they never give they never give anything to me. I was like, I finally, that MPH has come in handy and I won't get the credit. And then, the, and of course, I'm not an ID doctor. I'm not a critical care doctor. I'm a different doctor. And, and of course, anyone can say that about anyone because there's no amount of credentials one could have unless you're St. Anthony of Fauci. Um, um, but even then, I'm sure there's something, someone will knock him for something. But anyway, the point of this tirade is to say, say, um, I guess, I guess I am troubled by that messaging that is not empathetic to what people are telling you. And I wonder if you might talk about what is empathetic messaging look like? 
Sure. You know, I, I guess I want to start by saying that people are the experts of their own lives. Um, we all bring our expertise to this work, um, but we're not the experts of, you know, individuals' lives. We're not the experts of communities' experiences. And, you know, in my work, it's really important to sit and understand, you know, the experiences of communities, because I think that's our starting point for beginning to developing um, messaging um, and approaches to working um, within those communities. And, you know, we know that social connection is a basic human need. And, um, and you know, if we start from that point and start to think about how do we reduce the risk of meeting that need? Yes. How do we structure yes. safer alternatives for social connection? It's going to get us a lot further not only in our approach to messaging, but in the public health strategies that we're developing. Sometimes I think we forget that we're asking people to change their lives for months on end. We know that even short-term behavioral changes are very difficult to make. Yes. Um, you know, we are asking for incredible sacrifices. Yes, well and put, so yeah. it, we have to really, you know, empathize you know, people, because we know that they're struggling, you know, to make these changes, um, you know, we're denying access to family, to friends, and to the other things that bring joy into their lives. You know, life is about much more than just stemming transmission of COVID-19. We need to, you know, we need to do that. But I think we failed to see that creatively thinking about how we sustain this response is critical you know, to, um, you know, critical to the work of containing, you know, this virus. Yes. And I think part of that means is COVID zero might not be the goal and keeping schools open might be a worthwhile trade-off on balance, even if there's a few cases, although not many, I think a few cases that um, come from that, um, uh, you know. Um, yeah, I I'm not sure that you know, I think we need to fight for every last life. Yes. You know, I come from a global health background and, you know, my approach has always been that we fight for everyone and we fight for the most vulnerable first, you know, and I, so I worry about the sort of pandemic nihilism that's yes. crept in, you know, I don't see, you know, a suppression approach as has been employed successfully or relatively successfully in other settings as being incompatible um, with a public health response that is centered on equity, that recognizes people's fundamental needs for human connection. Um, you know, that's I think that we can define an approach um, that gives people the support that they need to meet their needs, um, including, you know, their social and emotional needs. I think there's been very little creative thinking across the public health community about how to do that. And, you know, it's we need to think what what are the supports that need to be in place? How do we structure better alternatives? Um, and I, you know, I think, you know, recreational activities are important, but they're obviously I don't want to suggest that they're the only thing that people need. Yeah, to that end. So this is the thing I'm working on. And you can tell me right now if I'm crazy, and I'll abandon my 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 drafting. But I, 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 I want to write a piece and I'm going to call it and it's maybe somebody will think it's stupid. And I, well, I'm actually I'm confident somebody will think it's stupid. There's always somebody who thinks everything you do is stupid. So fine. Okay. Thank you, world. Um, but I think my idea, my, the thing I'm going to write is going to be called um, a tailgate Christmas. So I went to college of Michigan State University, big, uh, big 10 uh, farming campus. 
And, you know, it, it gets as cold there as it gets anywhere in this country. I mean, it gets cold. And all winter long, we have football games and we have, it's tailgate season. And what does tailgate season mean? Um, you know, we'd wake up at like actually earlier than we usually do, like seven or eight o'clock. And we'd go to the parking lot of one of these big buildings. And a lot of people would pull up their trucks or their cars and open up the tailgate. Um, and people would pull out grills and somebody had a deep fat fryer and they had turkey and people put out picnic tables. And so, you know, a lot of good food and a lot of good drink, a lot of good drink. And, um, you know, you can gather around, um, people had like hot stoves and peak camper stoves and propane uh, stoves. And, and we gathered around, kept our hands warm. Uh, but you know, we also, you know, we we're college kids, you know, it, and, and it wasn't just college kids. Of course, it's a huge thing in Michigan. It's like people from grandparents to, you know, it's everybody's is at these tailgates and it's an all day thing. And before the game starts at like 7 PM, although you hope it starts at 3 PM. So you're still have your senses together for the game if you got all day tailgating. Um, but it was a, it's a huge thing in Michigan. I mean, it's like a way of life. People like they, they, they plan their calendars around this. And so anyway, the thing I want to write is, um, like, this is what we should be talking about for Christmas. Tailgate Christmas. Um, it has advantages. You're outdoors. People can distance. Um, is the risk going to be zero? No, it's not going to be zero, but it's a lot better than going indoors. If everyone's out there doing it, if the people set out some stoves, um, some heat sources, um, I think it will be quite popular. Um, it could be even fun, God forbid. Um, thoughts on this um, this future op-ed I'm writing that um, I'm sure is going to blow up in my face. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, how do we structure safer alternatives um, for socialization and recreation for people? And that may look like tailgate Christmas in Michigan. It might look like bonfire Christmas where I am um, I in Vermont. Yeah, yeah. You know, it might look very different um, in a warmer client, yeah. uh, climate, but we, you know, we need to help people understand what are the real risks and then how do we structure safer alternatives, um, you know, to allow them, you know, to enjoy the holiday? We, we know that, you know, not everything is possible during a pandemic, but some things are. Um, we, we can help to meet that need, at least partially. So you, you, you're not a hater of tailgate Christmas. You kind of like the idea. No, I actually was, <laughs> I was actually writing something, starting to write something myself. I was like on this topic, but never never finished it so so you're not gonna be offended if i write tailgate christmas <laughs> but i'm gonna i'm gonna include your line about bonfire vermont you're okay you're comfortable with this yeah i'll, I'll send you what i have in, uh, on this topic too you want to work together maybe we'll talk about it offline yeah yeah um, yeah yeah oh that might the, be you're gonna cut this out of the conversation you'll cut this out of i don't know podcast, maybe we'll keep it why people want to know how the sausage <laughs> is made on collaborations yeah um but, you know, there are others that have done really beautiful work on this topic. Of course. You know, Julia, Julia of course. Oh, yeah. Julia is the best. Um, yeah, she's right. been on the podcast. Julia is the best. She's written so eloquently and thoughtfully. I mean, more than Tailgate Christmas, of course, you know, like right. broader about, I think, I think she's right. I mean, I think if we had like 10 Julia Marcuses, we'd be in like a different place, um, emotionally, mentally. Um, I think... Uh, a lot of the people I've had on this podcast, I think are, are I mean, that's my bias. I think they're right. So I bring them on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that we also have to socialize this idea among policymakers yeah. um, and leaders. I think that many of them don't, um, you know, are not familiar with harm reduction approaches. Yes, I don't think and are, so yeah. it's not simply a matter of um, helping, you know, individuals to understand this. But I think that if we really look, you know, at policymakers and help them to understand these approaches, and how they can institute them, you know, at state or municipal level that, you know, we can 
you can have more success. I think, you know, we need to think not only about, you know, home settings, you know, and individual families, but how do we do this, you know, how do we do this in public settings as well? You know, what I would love is for cities, you know, to be sponsoring outdoor yes, activities, exactly. to be providing, yes. you know, bonfire pits, um, Central outdoor resources heaters. For this, yeah. put, put the picnic tables out down the street. Yeah. Yeah. If you're in a cold climate, set up skating rinks, provide yeah. outdoor gear, provide discounted ski passes, you know, provide the support that communities need in order to access, you know, recreational opportunities that are safer um, than those that they'll um, pursue on their own. You know, these are things that we can structure and that we can incentivize um, and make happen. And if we do these things, I think we're going to be able to sustain our response through the winter better. Yes. As I reflect on this pandemic, I think it would be naive to say it has not affected me. Of course, it has affected me. I mean, I'm I'm a bird that needs to fly. I don't like to be cooped up in the cage. <laughs> no, I just but I don't like to be I don't like to be uh, trapped at home. But uh, I am a lot. Um, and I guess I believe if I were to stand on the side and, and observe myself, I would say, I actually, I believe I've become actually much more reticent than I usually am. Um, and you may find that hard to believe because they put out these podcasts, but I mean, in terms of like actual um, Twitter and such, I, I, a lot of things I don't say that I'm tempted to. Um, and in fact, I, I clamped down on that. Um, and the reason I responded, I think with more reticence is that I'm worried that if I weren't reticent, I wouldn't be who I want to be or who I am. I worry that I'm being pulled in some direction I don't really see um, because, um, you know, some of these things are difficult. But to be honest, you know, it's not too difficult for me because I've kept a, I've, lucky I've kept a stable job and I have really nothing to complain about. And I'm actually not as outgoing as I may have led you to believe. I actually watch a lot of Netflix and read books a lot. So I'm pretty much doing what I normally do. Um, and I write, yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm not a very adventurous person. Um, that was a total lie. But um, but I, I used to give a lot of lectures for, for work-related things, and I don't do that anymore. Um, but the reason I have this incredibly long prelude is that I think that um, anguish affects people differently. And um, one of the ways I think anguish affects people is to view the world through the lens that people who don't do exactly what you want them to do are not good people, they're bad people. Anguish encourages that kind of moralization of choices. Um, it makes everything a moral question. I think anguish makes some people proselytize, people who otherwise wouldn't tell people what to do, they make them um, people who proselytize and, and go out and try to... Um, convert people, but mostly try to like preach their own choir. Um, and when I, and, 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 and anguish makes people, um, very sensitive, um, looking to be hurt or outraged, um, by the latest, um, infraction, whatever that may be. Um, and so when I look on social media and I look in my feed, I'm sometimes like, oh gosh, I mean, people are really angry about X, whatever. Every day there's something else. You know, to be honest, when this podcast will come out, people will think I'm talking about something that I'm not talking about because I actually don't have anything on my mind. But I do see this sort of recurring cycle of outrage, people getting really angry about, um, you know, some post, some article, some news story, some this, that, the other, something some person did. Um, and, and more angry about it than I feel like they would if, if this pandemic weren't there. I think a lot of people just wouldn't care that much. They'd have things to do. Um, so I guess I wanted to pick on this in your mind and think about like... Um, the 
I, I don't know what the question is. I guess the question has to do with um, when you place um, restrictions on people, even good restrictions that are the right restrictions, there is the counter, you know, you talked about this. How do you handle the, the counter countervailing things that come from it? And one of those things is anguish. Anguish is, it affects everybody, I think, to some degree, even if people don't want to admit that they're feeling it, they're feeling it. Um, how do you think about that? And how do you, and, 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 and what do you tell somebody to like, I don't know, to, how, do, how do they recognize it in themselves and what can they do to sort of feel better about it or overcome it? You know, I think it's really important that we, you know, have a conversation around hope right now, especially, um, you know, I think hope is how we combat anguish. Uh, we have to, point. hope is something that we have to actively cultivate. We have to work together to create it, um, you know, particularly at this moment when we're watching just catastrophic loss of life mm -hmm. day after Every day, day. Yeah. we're watching, you know, a real giving up, you know, go on across this country. Um, and I think that those of us who are engaged um, in the response to the pandemic in various ways really have to come together and think about how, you know, in, you know, a really dark time, you know, how do we imagine, how do we reimagine what's possible? Um, how do we, you know, double down with really creative approaches to get as many of us across the finish line as possible, yeah. you know, and I think, how do we, you know, and we'd have to do that collectively, but then we also have to think about how do we cultivate hope, you know, within our own spaces, um, you know, whether that's within our own communities, our families, our social networks, um, you know, that's the only antidote to that type of despair or anguish I know is hope and hope is hope is not an easy thing. You know, I grew up in the global health movement. Mm -hmm. um, I began my work in Haiti and, you know, at, you know, a really difficult time and came to learn that the way, you know, you know, the only response we can have um, when we see the type of loss of life that we're seeing, and it's something that I experienced, you know, when I started in human rights work is we, you know, we, we honor the lost by just fighting, you know, twice as hard for the living. And that's yeah. what we're going to have to do um, to get to the end. Um, it's, you know, it's not, you know, it's not an easy moment, but that's, you know, I think where we're at. That's well put. I was, I was tempted to say that I think the great hope has come, which is this uh, mRNA vaccine and vaccines, which is great. Um, but I worry that there's some people who find a way to find a way to diminish the hope by by ex yeah. excessively <laughs> dwelling on on all these people who not gonna they're like the vaccine is like well like i want to pop champagne and everyone's like uh these people are not gonna take it i'm like oh quiet about that they're gonna take it eventually yep yeah I, you know i think that we you know i think that many people will take it um yes you know we have to you know it's gonna take a lot of work to get there yes. and a lot of humility to yes. find yes. the right yes. way to do that yes. and you know my call is for humility and for listening right yes. now um, to think about that. Yes. But what's but really important meantime, for yeah. me is for us not to see the vaccine as, yes, you know, a an parachute. easy out, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, for what needs to happen. We need as many people alive to get that vaccine as possible, you know, over the next several months. Yeah. Um, so we're going to, we, it's, this is a moment for us you know, to see vaccine equity, not simply as a matter of, you know, finding all the arms we can jab quickly, but really thinking about how do we, you know, how do we move everybody? How do we get as many of us, um, you know, to that finish line as possible? And Sawson, it's a real pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for having me again. 
You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.